turn to the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Matthew and Mark. I want to continue on from last Sunday night. When we looked at the Pharisees, they went from heroes to hypocrites. Some of the decisions they made as a group of people. Matthew 5 and verse 20, Jesus makes a, a very important statement. Powerful statement, a shocking statement that I am sure arrested the attention of everybody who heard him say this. Listen to what he says in chapter 5, verse 20. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now can you just imagine people saying, exceed? Look at how particular they are. Look at all the T's that they cross and all the I's that they dot. And Jesus is saying, I've got to have a righteousness that's better than that, that's got to exceed that. I can hardly keep up with the Pharisees, never mind get better than them at keeping the law. But he said, unless your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case, in no way, not possible, you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I am sure those that heard Jesus say that statement probably heard that and got a little disheartened because I suppose most people think they couldn't even keep up with the Pharisees, never mind exceed them. What is Jesus talking about? Obviously, there's more than one kind of righteousness. More than one kind of righteousness. With that in mind, turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Verse 28, it says, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, you have said the truth. For there is only but one God, and there is none other but He, and to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He had answered discreetly, He said unto him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, nobody dared ask him any question. Jesus was pleased with how this man responded when he asked, What is the great commandment? 
Because if you were to ask the average scribe or Pharisee, you would have received a very different answer than what Jesus just gave. Jesus said the great commandment is love. Love God, love your neighbor. On those two things hang all the law and the prophets. But if you were to ask the scribe or the Pharisee, the regular one out there on the street, the one who was so in the face of everybody what the great commandment was, they would not have said that. In Mark's Gospel, and I think I mentioned to you before, I spent two years studying almost nothing but Mark's Gospel. I just absorbed myself in it for the longest time. There is an underlying theme. It's like a novel that is written. There's a plot to this story. There's a constant clash in this gospel, as with the other gospels. There's this constant clash between Jesus and the religious people, especially the Pharisees. And it's all over how to properly interpret the laws of Moses. It's an underlying theme in this book, and it's over a definition of what is clean and what is considered unclean. Jesus' definition changed the way people thought, because he said cleanliness is not an issue of external things. It is an issue of the content of your heart. Cleanliness was not to be found in the diet that you eat. Now, healthiness might be, but spiritual cleanliness is not to be found in the diet that you would eat, particularly over the subject of meat. In chapter 7, verse 19 of Mark, Jesus made a statement. By that statement, the implication was there's no such thing as spiritually unclean food. Now, there might be unhealthy food, but there's no such thing as eating a food that would make you spiritually unclean. Now, that was hard for the common person to take because the Pharisees were so strict on telling you what you could and what you could not eat and so forth. But Jesus said spiritual cleanliness has nothing to do with food. The Apostle Paul would echo that statement in the book of Romans, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's interesting that in Mark's Gospel, every time you read of demonic activity, you never see Mark ever call the demon an evil spirit. It's interesting. Mark consistently calls it an unclean spirit. And he does that on purpose. Because other Gospels would say a demon or an evil spirit. And once Mark just does say a devil. But he never uses the phrase evil spirit. He always uses the phrase an unclean spirit. Because that's part of the, the plot in the Gospel of Mark. What is clean? What is unclean? What is our core value? Before I explore what the Pharisees thought the core value was, let's see if we can get a little bit of their self-understanding as a nation at the time that Jesus came into the world. They were a Jewish state under Roman domination and occupation. Caesar was their king, much as they hated it. They were under Gentile domination as much as they hated it. 
They had to deal with Pilate. They had to deal with Herod and so forth. But Herod did them a favor and he built them a temple to appease them. You should see that temple. Massive. I was in the country of Israel one time some years ago and I saw the remains of this temple. Massive. We have no idea how monstrosity of a big thing that was. And any time of the day you would find 2,000 priests ministering in it at any time of the day. It was huge. It was massive. They believed, the Jews believed, that God dwelt in that inner sanctuary. That he dwelt in that inner room that we refer to as the Holy of Holies. And as long as the presence of God was there, then they were guaranteed blessing. There's some truth in that, where the presence of the Lord is. There's going to be blessing. But they believed that God dwelt there. As far as they were concerned, that temple was the center Not of the world, but the center of the universe. God himself dwelt there. But if God was ever to withdraw his presence, uh, we don't want to think in that, do we? If God was ever to withdraw his presence, then they would experience the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And we really... You don't want to read that chapter because it talks about being smitten with hemorrhoids and disease and enemies over top of you and just curse after curse after curse after curse. And how about I just skip that reading that passage? Should I just skip it? They, would, they didn't want anything to cause God's presence to leave because then they would be given over to much more harsh cursing than they would experience. So therefore, they believed that it was their duty to protect the temple from being defiled. Listen carefully. It was their duty to protect the temple from being defiled. How many think God needs protection? Interesting question. If you were to ask the scribe or the Pharisee, the average one, different than this one who asked Jesus in Mark 12, because he was more discreet, but if you ask the average scribe and Pharisee what the great commandment was, he would not say, love the Lord with all your heart. He would quote Leviticus 19 and verse 2 to you. Leviticus 19 verse 2 says, be holy. For I, the Lord, am holy. Now listen carefully to the difference. You ask Jesus, what's the core value? Love. Ask the scribe and the Pharisee, what's the foundation of your temple? Holiness. Now how many know we've already got a problem? That these are two different ways of thinking. They saw holiness as the foundation of value out of which everything else was based. Very different than what Jesus said was the starting point, who declared love is the foundation. They had a wrong starting point, and that wrong starting point was compounded by how they misinterpreted the laws of Moses. 
If you remember from last Sunday night, we un- they misunderstood that righteousness can never, never, never be achieved by outward legislation. Make all the legislation you want. It's not going to make you holy. Amen? Holiness, according to Jesus, is a matter of having your heart renovated by the power of God. Holiness is not the absence of the laws of God, but holiness is the laws of God revealed and written inside your heart, where they don't become laws as much as they become promises empowered by the Spirit of God. You shall not commit adultery. That can either be a commandment, or when God renovates my heart, puts the Spirit in there, and writes in my heart, it becomes a promise. You won't be committing adultery. You will not commit adultery. What used to be a command that nobody could keep now becomes a promise that by the Spirit of God within you causes you to walk in the ways of God. But they didn't understand that. They were all about outward legislation. We also saw last week that they never understood the intent of the law, why God gave it. Remember the intent was, well, it's like your wedding vows. It's obligations of love. I will have no other gods before me because, hey, you're the one that I love. I don't want any others. You know, they're just the expressions of love. So they misinterpreted how to handle the law, and they start with the wrong foundation. Now, as we go through this, I wonder if the Holy Spirit would speak to us what kind of a mindset that we have Because I would go as far as to say that churches that are built upon tradition also have a wrong foundation stone. Mm. I would say some people put holiness higher than love. What do you think? Their faulty handling of the law, nevertheless, it created and it shaped the context and the culture of their nation. Their wrong beginning, nevertheless, created a sense of meaning and coherence, reaching into every area of their life. It affected how they behaved, how they worked, the food they ate, the dress they wore, the worship they gave. And they used holiness as the foundation, the core value of all that they practiced. Their definition of holiness was wrong. And they went to creation to get their understanding. The story of creation to get the understanding of holiness. And allow me to explain, because if you can see this, it will greatly open up your understanding of the reading of the scriptures, especially the gospels. Greatly enhance your appreciation of how the Holy Spirit has come to renovate our heart and hopefully get us on a right wavelength in thinking. In their understanding of holiness, they looked for two things. Listen to the two things. The first thing they looked for was wholeness or purity. When I say wholeness, it's the concept that means you have to be complete without blemish, entire conformity. For instance, you could not offer a lamb if it had a blemish. If it had a blemish, it was not holy. It was not 
acceptable. And so in order to be holy, you have to be full, entire, complete, without deficiency and no blemish. Anybody here holy? According to that definition? You've already, you're already hearing a point that I'm making here. All right? Nobody's holy with that definition. All right? And the second thing that you looked for was what I call separateness. Or it had to be free from pollution. What do I mean by that? To be separate means everything is to be in its proper place. When is dirt dirt and when is it soil? If I come into your house with muddy boots, and I don't bother to clean them off, but I walk through your nice kitchen with my muddy boots, what do you think of me? I've, I've, I've dirtied your house. I've polluted your house. Why? Because your kitchen floor is not the place for mud. You would call it dirt and pollution if I brought it into your kitchen. But if it was outside in the vegetable garden, you would say, that's where it belongs. And when it's out there in the vegetable garden, it's good. That's where it belongs. But when it's on your kitchen floor, it's pollution. So in other words, everything has a right place in which it should be, and if it's out of place, it is polluted. Profane, not holy. So to be holy means you have to be perfect, entire, completely whole, conforming exactly to what you're supposed to be, and you have to stay in your proper place. Because in the story of creation, everything was in order, everything was in its proper place. I mean, God didn't put the fish on the land, he put them in the sea. Everything is in its right place. That's what their whole concept of holiness was founded on, those two concepts. Now, the trouble is that those concepts created boundaries. You have to learn your place. You have to learn where you lived and where your role is in society. You have to, and don't get out of that role. If you get out of that role, you're creating havoc for the nation. So everything is alright if everything and everybody just stayed in their proper place and if you conform to the category to which you belonged. Now I'm going to give you seven examples of how this worked out in the life of the Pharisees. Let's think of geography. Because since the, whole, the temple is where God dwells, that inner sanctuary is not just holy, it's referred to as the holy of holies. God himself is there. But the most sacred spot on the face of the earth is the temple, center of the universe. But if you move away from that temple and get further away, then what happens is things are still holy, but they are in lesser degrees of holiness than other things. Listen to see how this works. And this is the mindset and the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's the temple, very holy, the, the holy of holies, the holiest place. And then the sanctuary in the temple is holy, but not as holy as the inner sanctuary. The porch and the altar would be considered holy, but again, not as holy as the sanctuary. The courts would be a little less 
holy, the rampart would be a little less holy, and the mountain upon which Jerusalem stood and the temple stood is the holy mountain, but it's a little less degree holy. And if you just keep working it out, then you've got Jerusalem, which they refer to as the holy city. And then you go from there to the different walled cities of the country. And then you would go through the entire nation of Israel, which you would refer to as the holy land. Have you ever heard those phrases? The holy city, the holy land. You are all good Pharisees to think like that. Those are their words and their definitions that somehow Israel is more holy than any other nation and the city of Jerusalem is more holy than any other city in Jerusalem. Oh, did I forget to tell you, holiness stopped at the border of Israel. Anything beyond the border was unclean. Are we understanding? They had degrees of holiness for their geography. What about people? The most holy person in the whole world was the high priest. There was nobody more holy than the high priest. After him in rank became the Sadducees. Why? It's because they basically lived and worked around the temple. They didn't get very far away from the temple. Since they were there at the temple, they were quite holy people. So they were. And then after that, you got the Pharisees, who were quite holy people. And after that, you've got all the Levites. And then every Israelite would be considered holy, but to a lesser degree. Anybody converted to Judaism would be considered holy, but a little lesser degree than a natural-born Israelite. Then you had disqualified priests. And after that, you had eunuchs. And then after that, you had physically deformed people who did not conform to perfect wholeness. Therefore, not holy. Hope you understand the man of the gate called beautiful in Acts chapter 3. Forty years sitting at the gate. Never once in his life ever got to go in the temple. Until that day he went walking and leaping and praising God. And for the first time in his life he could go in. Why? Because that's not holy. And don't defile the temple with your unholiness. You see, this definition, this way of thinking, creates barriers that keep people away from God. You follow what I'm saying? These things, these, these definitions of holy, we actually are erecting fences and barriers that bar people from the presence of God. So you've got physically deformed people. They can't get in the synagogue. They can't get in the temple. Because they're not holy. There's blemish. Well, what do you think of morally unclean people? Oh, how many times did the Pharisees say, if, that, if, she, if, that, if he just knew what manner of woman that was, morally unclean uh, people, then I could also go to dead people. Don't touch one. It'll make you unclean. Now, 
of course, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were frustrated at the people who followed Jesus. And they make this comment, John 7, verses 47 to 49. These dumb people who don't know the law. They just knew the law. But it was their interpretation of the law that they were on about. I mean, they were angry at Peter and John, the book of Acts, because they were unlearned and ignorant men. But they've been with Jesus. But they were unlearned and ignorant men. I want you to notice the Samaritans don't make the list of holiness at all. They are unclean. They are dogs. They are immoral people. And Gentiles certainly don't make the list at all. Do you remember Peter in the book of Acts? Do you remember Peter going to the house of Cornelius? Do you remember what a struggle that was? Do you remember he said, we're not supposed to even go in the house of a Gentile? What am I doing here? Why? Because they would be defiled with this uncleanness. So, geography, people, food. How do you determine what food is clean and what food is unclean? Leviticus chapter 11, if you want to read it, gives you the rules about how to define what is clean or unclean food. Only that which fits into the description of holiness is permitted. If you're going to eat an animal, it has to be a perfect animal. It has to conform to what that animal is supposed to be. Animals such as the camel, you don't eat. The pig, the swine, you don't eat. The hare, you don't eat. They're all considered unclean because none of them fit perfectly into the category of what they're supposed to be. Because they have a problem. Either they don't chew the cud or they have uncloven hooves. And if they don't fit both categories, they're considered unclean. You can't eat them. And if you eat that, you'd be considered spiritually unclean. When it came to getting stuff out of the water, the ocean, the seas, it has to fit the conformity of what belongs in the sea, which means that it has to have fins and it has to have scales. Anything else you don't eat. So if you like lobster, tough. It's just you can't eat it. It's not permitted because it doesn't fit the category of conformity to the class of species of what it's supposed to be, so it's unclean. And they had rules for the fowls of the air that you could eat. It had to fit the conformity of what that species was supposed to be. They applied this concept of clean and unclean to the matter of time. Holy days. The Sabbath was the most holy day. Don't defile it by doing unnecessary work on the Sabbath day. Why? Because we don't want to bring any defilement to the nation because if we defile the nation with our our, our sin, God will withdraw Himself from the temple and then we have all the curses so we have to make sure that nobody violates the Sabbath day. That was the most holy day. Then they had feast days. They had the, like the Passover day. They had the Feast of the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. They had festival days. They had New Moon days. They had New Year days. They had fasting days. They came to know have the Feast of Purim. They had non-festival days. All those were holy. Some more holy than others. Don't violate it. Don't violate it. And then you had holiness applied to your worship. If you're going to offer a lamb, it has to be without blemish. It has to fit into the category of what is 
holy. So don't be sacrificing the pig because it doesn't fit the category properly. They would tell you what kind of animal to offer, who may offer, who may participate, where and when. And then they had the category of of things regarding your body. Everything has to be in its place. So blood, does it belong in your body or outside your body? Where is its proper place? Inside or outside? Inside. So what if you're bleeding? What if you got a cut and you're bleeding? That makes you unclean because the blood is out of place. Now just think with me, because in the Gospels you can already think of all sorts of stories. You can talk about a woman with an issue of blood. Unclean. Why? Because she could never stop the bleeding and blood belongs in the body, not outside the body. So every time there would be a bleeding, then she would be considered unclean. Saliva. Where does it belong? God gave it to you to help swallow. So if you spit, what is it? Why? Because it's not where it belongs. It belongs in the body. So I hope you can think of stories already in your scriptures about some things. eh? Blood, saliva, when a man and woman relate sexually one to another, and maybe there's some exchange of bodily fluids. Is that clean or unclean? Is sex dirty or clean? Depends what church you go to. <laughs> These are questions that people have. Somehow it's dirty, it's not right, it's not clean. Contaminations. If you come in contact with a contact with a corpse you'd be unclean if you come in contact with somebody who is bleeding you'd be unclean if you come into contact with somebody who spit you would be unclean if you touch something that they were sitting on that uncleanness would transfer to you if you would ride upon a horse they were just riding on then that uncleanness is apparently is contagious. And it would pass on to you. Now, I just talk about geography, people, foods, time, worship, body, contaminations. Can you imagine living like this? Maybe we can, because many people do. Many people do. All of life was viewed through those lens and holiness was achieved if we could just keep everything in its proper place and everything would fit to the category to which it belonged. Then we could just be holy and that way God will never get offended. He would never withdraw his presence. And so everything has to be kept within its boundaries and the Pharisees worked hard to make sure that the nation was holy because that was the great commandment to them. Be holy, for I am holy. Well, they had their way for a while and then came Jesus. I'm going to have some fun in the Gospels here for a minute. Then came Jesus. He seemed to have absolutely no respect for any of these definitions of holiness. 
I think he went out of his way, I might even say on purpose, to violate these standards of holiness because he saw this way of thinking, this definition of holiness as something that created barriers that kept people away from God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You see, if they don't dress right, they're not welcome in the service. Right? Do we do that? We create barriers that actually keep people away. Jesus violated every definition of holiness that they had. He paid no attention to their boundaries. Geographically, physically, time, in order of worship, in order of food. He paid no attention to any of it because he said, you're wrong, the foundation is not holiness, the foundation is love. And your definition of holiness was wrong. So, here comes Jesus. Just think of all the things that he did. Demons. No, I'm sorry. Unclean spirits. Cried out saying, I know who you are. You're the Holy One. Isn't that amazing that demons referred to Jesus? The unclean spirits cried to identify Jesus as the Holy One? Uh, lepers. That doesn't fit into the category of perfect conformity, does it? And you don't touch. But listen to what my Bible says. It says, and moved with compassion, he touched the leper. Jesus, don't you know what holiness is? You don't do that. But moved with compassion, Jesus touched the leper. There's the story of a woman with an issue of blood. If you're bleeding, you're not clean. Blood belongs in the body. And if you're going through a time when you're bleeding in any way, shape, or form, you're considered unclean. Anything you touch would be unclean. That poor woman who had that issue of blood for 12 years had been in lockup in prison in her own home for 12 years. Holiness kept her isolated without friends, without family, without physical contact, without social contact, because everything she touched would be unclean. No wonder when Jesus said, who touched me, she didn't give an answer at the start. No wonder, because she said, oh, it's me, I touched you. What's your problem? Well, I've been bleeding for 12 years. <laughs> and, and how many people has she just touched in that crowd? How many people did she just go all the way through? And, oh, can you imagine? She touched Jesus as well, making him unclean. I tell you, there's one person who really had problems with that. His name was Jairus. Because Jesus was on the way to the house of Jairus because Jairus' daughter was sick to the point of death. And I need Jesus to come and raise my daughter. And oh no, this unclean woman just touched Jesus. Now Jesus is unclean. How can Jesus come and heal my daughter if he's unclean? Are we understanding that love pays no attention to these rules and love cleanses everything it touches. Are we catching the point? Love will cleanse the unclean. Very different way of thinking than the scribes or the Pharisees. Oh, I can just imagine the daughter of Jairus 
My Bible says, how about yours, that Jesus took her by the hand, touched the corpse. Amazing, isn't it? Oh, Jesus got out of a boat that day. He walked into unclean Gentile territory, into an unclean graveyard that was full of unclean dead men's bones beside the herd of unclean pigs with a man full of unclean evil spirits. Now, I don't think you can go into a much more of an unclean situation than that. But listen, love will go anywhere. Love will go anywhere and everywhere. But holiness won't go near it. But love will pay no attention to the barrier. And all Jesus has to do is show up. And a legion of demons negotiate how to surrender. Aren't you glad where Jesus goes, where holy people won't go? Well, can you just imagine the shock that day when they brought a man who was deaf and dumb? They came for Jesus to heal him. Can you imagine the shock value when Jesus... He could have done this any way he wanted to. He could have just spoken a word. He could have just laid hands on him. He could have just done whatever. But just to prove that their definitions of holiness was wrong, he spit on them. Anybody want prayer for healing tonight? He spit on them. Can you imagine the shock? What you call unclean, the love of God can revolutionize. And if that wasn't enough, in Mark chapter 8, there's a man who is blind. And Jesus says, well, let's do it again. And with spit, the man's eyes are healed. You see, there's a lesson there because at the end of Mark 7, he heals a deaf man with spit. Halfway through Mark 8, he heals a blind man with spit. But you know, in between the story of the deaf man and the blind man, you have 12 deaf and blind disciples in a boat. They're deaf and they're blind. They forgot to take bread and just... Not to take bread. I mean, when I multiplied the bread, how much did you have? And I multiplied it again. Why are you concerned that we don't have enough bread? He said, do you have eyes, but you can't see? Have you got ears, but you can't hear? And that episode where the disciples who are blind and deaf spiritually, well, it's introduced by healing a deaf man with spit, and it ends with healing a blind man with spit. What's the cause of their blindness? I'll tell you what it is. It's holiness. It is tradition. It caused them to not see. It caused them to not hear. I'll make a church go quiet. But it's true. Now that's not enough. Jesus calls a tax collector to be with him. He eats with sinners. He doesn't wash with hands before he eats bread. As a matter of fact, he multiplied bread in the wilderness and fed 5,000. I doubt if any of them out there washed before they ate. 
bread. He healed on the Sabbath. He disrupted the money changers and he was perceived as speaking against the temple. How unholy can Jesus be? However, you and I both know that Jesus is holy. Amen? His violation of the Pharisees' interpretation did not make him unholy. Actually, his love and his compassion made the unclean clean. What does God think of Jesus? Well, at the baptism, he said, this is my son, my beloved son. At the transfiguration, God said, this is my beloved son. Both God and John the Baptist testified about who this Jesus is. Even the unclean spirits testify, I know who you are, you are the Holy One of God. And God raised him from the dead, a testimony that he was holy and he was righteous. Now here is the the, the problem, is that Jesus came with a different foundation with a different core value about what the kingdom is all about. It's not about holiness the way the Pharisees described it, because that creates a tradition that sets up barriers of who's righteous and who's not, and we dare not cross lines with one another. We don't go to the unclean, and the unclean are not welcome here. We set up these barriers. Jesus did not have such a core value. It's love. For instance, I want you to turn with me and read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Turn with me and read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, to get a biblical definition of what true holiness is. What real true holiness is. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12 and 13, Paul is praying for this Thessalonian church. And he says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do towards you. For what purpose? To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Learn to love Because that is what makes you holy before God. So what is true holiness? It is the expression of love. You can say amen if you want to. What is true holiness? It is the expression of love. If you increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men, the end result is that our heart is established unblameable in holiness. The holiness of the scribes and the Pharisees created boundaries that kept people out. The demonized never got in. The woman with the issue of blood never got in. The leper was not welcome. The physically deformed person was not welcome. You have to keep them in their place. Don't defile anything by letting them come further than they're allowed to. But Jesus came and the love of Jesus, listen, I love this, the love of Jesus crossed those false boundaries because they're false boundaries. Cross those false boundaries. 
and brought true holiness to everybody who happened to live on the wrong side of the boundary. Love does not erect barriers against the unclean. Amen. Love does not erect barriers that people have to overcome to get near you. That's not love. I mean, all the way through the scriptures, I've already mentioned some of these, but Jesus moved with compassion, touched and he cleansed the leper. He broke down that barrier that kept that leper out of the kingdom of God. And love cleansed him. The paralytic let through the roof, found himself both healed and forgiven. Jesus is eating with sinners. Why? Because the righteous don't need any. Now, it's tongue-in-cheek when he says that. The righteous don't need any. In other words, you Pharisees don't think you need a doctor. But who are the real sick ones here? You Pharisees are. They have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. On the Sabbath day, he lets the disciples pick grain to eat. On the Sabbath day, he heals a man with a withered hand. He heals the gathering demoniac, an unclean Gentile territory, unclean graveyard, unclean dead men's bones with unclean pigs all around them. But he brings healing. woman with an issue of blood touched him. It didn't make Jesus unclean. It made her whole. It made her whole. He touches the dead daughter of Jairus. He uses spit to heal the blind, the deaf, and the dumb. Love pays no attention to the false barriers of holiness. Love is not afraid of being contaminated by the unclean because it doesn't become unclean. It makes the unclean clean. Listen to the power of compassion. The power of love. The unclean is made clean and love removes every barrier that keeps people from the presence of God. You see, all the way through Mark's Gospel, there's a little play on the words inside and outside. I don't know if you ever noticed that or not. Who's on the inside? Who's on the outside? In Mark chapter 3, Jesus' mother and, and his family think Jesus has gone a little crazy. and They've come to rescue Jesus from the self-delusion. And they finally found Jesus in a house. And Jesus is busy teaching in the house. And, and their mother and, and brothers and sisters are on the outside. And they say, hey, your mother is on the outside. Now, isn't that interesting? Anybody who should have been on the inside, who thought they'd be on the inside, was actually on the outside. And what's interesting in Mark chapter 4, when he talks in parables, he talks about those who should be on the inside and those who are within get to hear the meaning of parables and those who are on the outside don't hear it. And isn't it amazing that all the religious people who thought they were on the inside, according to Jesus, their holiness put them all on the outside. They had created the barriers and they were on the wrong side of the barriers. It's amazing if you just work through that in the Gospel of Mark. Listen as I just bring this to an end here, a conclusion. The Pharisees emphasized holiness based upon a tradition, based upon a faulty understanding of the Scripture, of the Word of God, of the laws of God. The Kingdom of God, according to Jesus, has love its foundation. 
The Pharisees looked to creation. Everything's got to be kept in its place. Jesus looked to grace instead. What happened is the holiness movement became exclusive. Having different degrees of who was holy and who wasn't, how you measured up to the whole thing. It became an exclusive club. The message of love is not exclusive. It's completely inclusive. The mindset of the Pharisees makes you defensive, makes you critical, makes you judgmental, looking for violations everybody has because we can't have that here. And your whole life is given to defending the barriers, defending the standards of holiness. And it becomes a very defensive mindset and it makes people elitist against everybody else. But the core value of love that Jesus had was not defensive, it was mission. It was encountering everybody. Encountering everybody. The Pharisees prided themselves that they knew the law, which they didn't. Jesus would point out, but you never knew the prophets, which interpreted the law, and you got it wrong. And the Pharisees, outsiders, are always unwelcome, and they know it when they come in. They know they're not welcome. They don't fit the category of what we are. They're not like us. Therefore, there's a barrier and it becomes unwelcoming to them. But when love rules, everybody senses love. Everybody senses love. If you and I hope to follow the initiative of the Holy Spirit, then what is required is that we have to rethink this whole thing. We have to rethink the whole thing. We have to put away from our thinking a wrong understanding of what holiness is and realizing that holiness is really the healing power of love. That's true holiness. The healing power of love. That means we must stop judging others by the standards we have raised. Stop looking down at people who don't conform to our standards. Stop the criticizing and replace all these things with mercy and compassion. Because mercy and compassion transforms people. That's what true holiness is. That's what drives Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. No wonder Jesus said there has to be a new temple. Because the temple he saw there in Jerusalem reflected nothing of the heart of God. It was massive, it was huge, 2,000 priests in it at any time. But Jesus said there's no fruit there. Do you remember the story of the fig tree in Mark 11? Remember that? He's going towards Bethany, towards Jerusalem. He comes across this fig tree. And even though it's not the season for figs, he's looking for some sort of life and some sort of fruit on it. Do you remember that? And he can't find any. And Jesus does something strange. I mean, you thought you think I was crazy if I did this. I start talking to a tree. You know, Jesus talks to this tree and he cursed the fig tree. No man eat fruit of you anymore. And end of story. Ah, it's not the end of the story. After he curses the fig tree and the disciples heard him do it, then they go into the temple. Oh, Jesus gets angry there. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. 
And he makes this whip and he starts driving out money changers and kicking over the tables and he's going at it. And they're furious with him and they're so furious with Jesus that they want to kill him. But they don't do it then and there because of the the people there. And right after that, Jesus the next day is with his disciples and they go by this fig tree again. You see, in between the story, in the middle of the fig tree story, there's the story of the temple that Jesus cleansed, cleansed out. They go by this fig tree. Master, the fig tree that you cursed, it's dead. Jesus, are you surprised? Have faith in God. And then he explained what prayer is, what forgiveness is, and what faith is. And when he said, whoever say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, it would obey you. Stop and think for a minute. What mountain? Where is he when he makes that statement? Whoever say to this mountain, where is he standing when he makes that statement? On the holy mountain. The temple mountain. And whoever could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. You see... Jesus said there has to be a new temple. Because the old temple is like the fig tree. Big, lots of leaves, looks impressive, but upon inspection, no life, no fruit, no ability to nourish anything. Their whole culture of holiness has brought death to the place. And he says, there's only one thing to do. Clean it out. Cleanse it. Do away with it. And there's a new temple that starts. What is the new temple? Have faith in God. What is the new temple? If any man sins against you, forgive him. What's the new temple? It's prayer. It's love. It's faith. It's forgiveness. That's the foundation of the temple of the New Testament. The new thing. It's a foundation built upon the revelation of love. Where our core value is love. Our core value is inclusiveness. Our core value is embracing everyone and anyone. Our core value is love. That's what the New Testament is all about. And if we want to follow the Holy Spirit, it will require a switching over mentally from one to the other. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is not identified with how the Pharisees did things. The Holy Spirit is identified with the culture of love. Because God is love. Interesting Bible, isn't it? Absolutely interesting Bible.